morning, and we're going to dive in. Jesus, you are good, and we love you, and we are excited to start off a new year with you. Lord, you're never done working on us. Uh, we never get to a place where we arrive. We never get to a place where we've had enough grace and enough mercy. Uh, we never get to this place where uh, we feel like we're, where we're just good. Um, Lord, there's always more you can do with us. We are always in need of more grace and more mercy to work in our lives, to shift us, to change us, to mold us, to shape us, to look like your son Jesus. And so what an amazing way to start off the year. What an amazing way to start out a brand new year, a fresh, a fresh start, a blank slate, uh, to talk more about what it means to, to follow you. So, Lord, today I pray as we start off this year together as a family that you would open our eyes and, and our ears and soften our hearts to your truth. We just invite your spirit into this place to speak to us and unpack things in ways we've never seen it unpacked before. You are so good. We love you. Thank you for being faithful. It's your name we pray. Everybody said. Amen. Amen. All right. All right. So we are starting, like we, we reached the summit of our journey through Romans, and now we're kind of starting the downhill journey, right? So you're, you're, this is like we're at the halfway point. So you all have done really well. We started this back in September, and you remember what we said? It's like when we get, we'll get there when we get there. Uh, you guys have done great. It's awesome. Um, and so we are now, like we, we crossed chapter 8 off the list. You know, it's Christmas, Christmas Eve Eve, and now we're getting ready to start this downhill journey into, into chapter 9, all the way through the end, into 16. So it's, re- it's been awesome. It's, this has been one of those things where I have loved walking through and studying and unpacking all these verses together, and so I'm really excited for what we're going to talk about today. But before we get there, I'm going to tell you a quick story. About three years ago, four years ago, my family decided to take our kids to Disney for the first time. And re- really, for Christy and I, it had been decades since we had even been there. And so Disney was kind of all new to us, and we, ran, we went around Halloween time, and one of the things they do at the Magic Kingdom is they do this Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween party, right, which means all the kids get to come, and they get to dress up in their costumes, and they go around, and they trick-or-treat in Disneyland, Disney World. So it's like, if you can imagine, it's pretty much perfect. Uh, it's like the best thing in the world for a kid, except, like, we all have these horror stories. You know, parents, you, you've got these kind of, this, this, like, what would be the worst nightmare scenario uh, would be to lose your kid at Disney World, right? Like, you imagine, like, it's just, a, it's just one of those things, like, you think about it, and it's like, man, I hope that never happens. The worst thing would be to lose your kid at Disney World in a Halloween party when they're dressed up in a costume, as are every other kid, and they're all wearing masks. That happened to us, right? That happened to us at this Halloween party. Like, we're all turning around, like, where's Jack? I said, like, I don't know. And it's like, well, find a kid dressed up like a Minecraft. Well, all the kids were dressed up like Minecraft. It was like they were either Minecraft characters or Captain America, right? That was kind of it. Or Disney princesses, right? So it's like we're looking around. It's like, how do you, it's like trying to find a needle in a stack of needles. And so we lose him, and everybody's freaking out, and we're, we're trying to find him. And, and it's one of those things where eventually we finally do find him. Like the kid that we brought, at least I think, that the kid that we brought back home with us responds to Jack. Um, and has for the last few years. Could be somebody else's kid, but at least he looks a lot like Jack and responds to that. But here's the thing. When we, lo- when we lost our kid, when we lost him, we had kind of two choices. We had two choices in that moment. Number one, we could have just kind of washed our hands with the whole thing and said, listen, we gave Jack directions. We told him on the ride over to the Magic Kingdom, it's going to be crazy. You better stay with us. Don't leave us. Don't run off and go hunting for candy. Stay right beside us. We gave him directions. Those directions were really clear. And Jack chose on his own to kind of do it himself. Like he wanted to go off on his own. He got himself lost. So stinks for Jack. Right? Stinks for him. Like you're going to miss out on some food, fun, and fireworks, man. Like it's, and, and really for us, it's like I'm glad, we're not, I'm glad we're not lost. 
right? I'm glad that we didn't get lost. We are actually going to get to eat the food and have the fun and watch the fireworks. Jack, who's lost somewhere, is going to miss out on that. So that's option one. Option one was we could have just gone, ah, his fault. Not our fault. His fault. His problem. Glad we're not lost, right? Option two would have been, like, we're going to freak out. Like, our heart breaks. You know, our kid is lost. He's not where he's supposed to be. And we're going to do everything we can to find him, which that's what we did, okay? So we, because, again, we didn't want Jack to miss out on everything great that was going to happen. So here's where I'm going with this, right? Here's why I tell you this story, and there's a reason for this. I'm going to ask a really true, honest, like, gut punch question, okay? And we're starting out. It's like, can we just ease into 20? No, we can't, right? It's going to set the stage. This question is going to set the stage for where we're going to go in the next few weeks. So here it comes. Are you ready? Let me put it up on the screen. It says this. What is your level of care and concern for people that are trying to go through life without Jesus? Think about that for a second. Think about your attitude towards people that are going through life without Jesus. Think about the level of care and concern that you have for the people in your life that are trying to go through life without Jesus. Now, just so we're totally clear on what I'm asking and what I'm talking about, when I talk about the people in our lives that are trying to do life without Jesus, I'm talking about people who live the without God life. And we've talked about this, right? We kind of know what this looks like. It's, it's, it's people that would say, like, I don't need God to be God in my life because I can be God in my life. I don't need somebody to be God in my life. I can do that. I can run my own life. Like, I don't need God to save me because I don't need to be saved. Like, I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. I can save myself. These are the people that say, like, I don't need God to provide for me because I can provide for me. I don't need God to run my life because I can run this life just as good or better than he can. And what happens with these people is that God has provided them. He's offered them the opportunity to do life with him, and they reject that offer. They reject the offer. I don't need it. We all know people like this. We all have people like this in our lives. So when you think about those people, like, don't just, don't just, like, it's not just like an arbitrary, like, we're all, we're talking about people that don't know Jesus or don't do life with Jesus. Like, what I want you to do right now is get a name and a face in your brain. Because we all know people like this. We all have people like this in our lives, people that are going through life right now without Jesus. What's your attitude? As that person's name or their face pops in your head, what's your attitude? What's that kind of initial attitude towards that person? Do you care about them? Are you concerned for them? Or for us, again, it's like the same thing that happened when we lost Jack at Disney World. We have, we have a handful of options. Option number one is that we can kind of wash our hands of this. We can, it's not that big of a deal. Like, I'm, like, they got themselves lost. It's not my fault they're lost. They got themselves lost. They're going to miss out on some good stuff in heaven, but boy, I'm glad I'm not lost like them, right? Sorry about hell. It's going to be a real bummer. Heard that place is not a lot of fun, right? That's option one. It's like, look, not my fault. Not my fault. It's not my fault. They got themselves lost. Option two is that our heart breaks for these people. Our heart breaks and we are concerned about the people in our lives that don't know Jesus. Our hearts genuinely hurt for them. It's heartbreaking to see them miss out on the with God life like Melissa just talked about. Right? There, there's this assumption that I'm disqualified from this, I can't live like this, and they miss out on it. They push back away from the with God life. They, they miss out on what it means to live life with God in relationship with him. It's life the way that God intended life to be. It's gut-wrenching to think about eternal life for these people, eternal life that's going to be forever separated from God, 
It's agonizing to think about these people in our lives. We get, we, it's, it's, it's agonizing to think, well, you're lost. Just like for us, with Jack was lost, it's like you're not where you're supposed to be. This is, there's something better. There's something better. There's a better place for you to be. That's kind of option two. Our heart breaks for these people. But here's the deal. There's a third option. And this is really the option I think that probably most of us land in, right? Option number three, and that's really kind of indifference. It's kind of like, eh, I'm, I'm not really sure what to do. I don't really know how I'm supposed to think. I don't know what I'm supposed to think about these, these people in my life that, that don't know Jesus and aren't doing, the with, aren't, aren't doing life with him. I, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about them. I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do about it. I don't really know if I can do anything about it. So it's kind of like, meh, I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So before we dive into Romans today, what I want us to do is think about this. Because really, that's the focus of the next three chapters they're going to walk through over the next few weeks. Now, here's the deal. We're going to cover a lot of ground. <laughs> I, 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 for me, it's like as I sat down to kind of work on today, I'm just letting you know. Today, like this week, next week, and two weeks from now are like basically like a sequel trilogy sermon. It's like one sermon broken into three parts. If I tried to do it all at once, we would be here till like three in the afternoon. So you're welcome, Right? <laughs> We're breaking it into three different parts. So just understand, today's going to end on a little bit of a cliffhanger. Next week's going to end on a little bit of a cliffhanger. But I promise you, it's all going to make sense. We're going to connect some dots here in the next couple of weeks. Because here's the thing. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, there's a lot of big rock stuff. Paul talks about a lot of big rock things. There's a lot of things that unhappen, that happen. And here's the thing. Some of that big rock stuff, all of it matters, and it's all a big deal. But sometimes the thing about Romans 9, 10, and 11 is some of those big rock things end up overshadowing what the main point of these next three chapters is. And I want to make sure today that when we leave today, we understand what the main point and what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks really is. N.T. Wright says it best. He says this, while, it, while the end of Romans 8 is one of the highest points of Christian celebration. In the present life, such moments, moments of celebration, are balanced by the sorrowful realization of the dark shadows which bright light casts. Stepping into the light of Jesus causes a realization of those who are still lost in the shadows. And this should lead us into postures of urgency, prayer, humility, reflection, and wisdom. That's the truth. Romans 8, finishing Romans chapter, I mean, Romans chapter 8 was like this amazing, like there is no condemnation, nothing can separate, all of that. I mean, that's amazing. And that is one of, again, it's like one of the moments of like pure joy and celebration. But, as we talked about at Christmas Eve, when we turn the light on, that light still casts shadows. And that's really what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. In the light of the no condemnation, Holy Spirit filled with God life that we live where no one can stand against us, where no one can judge us, where no one or no thing can separate us from the love of God. That light is on in us if we've said yes to Jesus. But where that light is, it exposes the fact that there are still some people that choose to reject everything that God offers them. And they choose to live in the shadows. Instead of stepping into the light, they choose to live in the dark. So the question is, how do we engage them? How do we engage people who are going through life without Jesus? How do we care for them? As believers in Jesus, how do we care for someone who is saying, no, nah, I don't really need Jesus. Don't need that. Don't want that. How do we have gospel conversations with them? 
What does it look like for us to sit down and have a conversation about what we believe and what is true and what the scripture says about the gospel? How do we have those conversations with these people? That's what we're going to be unpacking over the next few weeks. And Paul is going to give a master class on this, right? Paul, in the next few chapters, what he's going to do is he's going to let us into his own heart for people that are lost. Paul's going to give us like an example of here's how I feel about people who are lost and people who are living in the shadows. And it's an example to us when it comes to our attitude and our level of care and concern. Like what these next three chapters, it really is, and it's, it's an example for you and I to think about like as I think about those names and faces of people in my life who are doing, doing life without Jesus, what should my attitude towards them be? What should my level of care and concern for their life be? Paul's going to walk us through this. Because here's the deal. In Paul's case, it's not because the people that he's concerned about didn't have opportunities to choose and believe in the gospel. Just like many of us. Many of us, the people in our lives that we would say we are concerned about are the people in our lives that are going through life without Jesus. It's not because they didn't have opportunities to, to say yes to the God. They had plenty of opportunities. Paul's the same way. In fact, in Paul's case, it's the opposite. The people that he's concerned about, the people that he's caring for, they had more opportunities than just about anyone to believe in Jesus, to trust Jesus, and to follow Jesus. They had more opportunities than anyone to live a with God life, the, God, the life that God desires for us. But for them, instead of trusting and believing the gospel, they rejected Jesus. And instead, they chose to trust in their own efforts and their own status as God's chosen people. And in choosing to believe in their own effort and their own status, choosing to believe that effort and status can save us, they missed out completely on everything that Jesus offers us. So we're going to dive in. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, Romans chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 1. And we see this. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Because I wish that myself, I, that I would be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Remember we said all they had all kinds of opportunities. Paul's not denying this. Theirs was the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. All of the history, all of the, fa the family tree of Jesus was theirs. And from them is traced, he says, the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever to be praised. Amen. So you kind of see, when it comes to those people who are lost, Paul clearly goes with option two. His heart is breaking, right? He's not washing his hands of the whole deal, and he's clearly not indifferent. He's not indifferent to the lost people in his life. And who are those lost people? They are his people. The Jewish people, the Israelites, those are the ones, those are the people that Paul is so concerned about. He says again, like, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for these people. And here's why. Here's why Paul is so heartbroken. See, there were some Jews in this church in Rome. Because remember, we talked about this when we set this whole deal up. The church in Rome was kind of this mashup of people who were formerly Jewish that had converted to and now believe in Jesus. Right? And you also had people who were Gentiles. Gentiles were everybody else. These are people who had decided to trust and follow Jesus. And so you've got this mashup of these people with like this deep religious heritage 
And then you've got these people who have just, have just stepped into being children of God. And they're mashing together, right? They're trying to figure this whole thing out. And then also in Rome at the time, there's thousands of other like belief and faith systems that were hostile towards this. Why? Because these people over here, these people that follow Jesus, they claim there's only one God, right? And that this God is the God that we need to be like, that's crazy. That's crazy. So they were hostile. And so Paul's writing them going, listen, if there are lost people in your midst, there is tension even that we feel within the church. Let's figure out how to navigate this. That's really what this is about. See, a lot of the people, some people, some Jews, like Paul, they accepted Jesus. They followed Jesus. They trust Jesus. But a lot of the Jewish people rejected Jesus. Why? Jesus didn't meet their expectations. Jesus didn't live up to their expectations of who or what the Messiah in their mind was supposed to be. They wanted a political leader. They wanted someone who was going to come in and be a political leader, to be a king, to be someone who was large and in charge. They wanted a military leader. They wanted someone who would go to war with anyone and everyone that threatened Israel. They wanted a celebrity pastor. They wanted someone who was famous to come and save Israel from Rome and everyone else. We, we want you to save us from Rome and everyone else. That's what they wanted. They didn't want some poor blue-collar guy from Nazareth who came to save the entire world from sin and death. That's not what they were after. We just want someone who is, who's a king, who's in charge, who's a warrior, who, who knows a lot, who's famous. We want this person to save us from everyone, not this person to save everyone from sin. That's what we want. That's what they wanted. So they thought, when it came to Jesus, that he was a fraud, that, that he's not the real Messiah. He's, he's not the one. He didn't, and the one, the one that's eventually going to meet our expectations, he's still yet to come. So in the meantime, as Paul is thinking about his own people and probably his own family, like when you think about those names and faces, when you get those names and faces in your brain of people who are doing life without Jesus, some of us, it's our own families. It's people in our family. Paul is going, me too. I get it. It's probably some of the people in his own family that he's thinking about here. So what these people are doing is instead of hanging on to Jesus with both hands, with one hand they're hanging on their ability to follow God's rules, the law, right? Which means doing religion for God instead of being in a relationship with God. So they're hanging on tight to religion. And with the other hand, they're hanging on to their status as God's chosen people. And Paul doesn't deny that. Paul's like, yeah, you, like you, God has chosen you. God has chosen you from within is going to come this Messiah like this is going to happen. And so they're going, hey, we're holding on to rules with this hand. We're holding on to our status with this hand because we're the ones that God picked. We're the ones that he set apart. We're the ones that he chose. He gave us the law. We're special. That's really all we need to save us. That's all we need to save us. See, for the Jews, they were like, you know, we automatically get saved because we are who we are and because we do what we do. Like, we don't need any of this Jesus stuff. The bottom line is this. They're religious, lost people. See, lost, people who are lost, most of the time, they don't know that they're lost. Most of the time, they don't realize that they're lost, right? And so for those lost people, people who are genuinely lost, they don't know that they're lost. And so we have pity. We, we, take, we, we, we take mercy. We, give, we extend mercy to them, right? So you don't realize how lost you are. Like Jack at Disney World didn't realize how lost he was until he realized he was lost, so most people who are lost don't realize that they're lost. But here's the thing. Religious lost people don't think they're lost. Lost people don't know that they're lost. Religious lost people don't think they're lost. And so what religious lost people believe is this, that my own effort 
and my own ability can earn and achieve the status of being chosen by God. They don't think they're lost. I'm not lost. My own effort and my own ability have achieved for me, have earned for me the status of being chosen by God. But here's the deal. Religious lost people are still lost. In fact, I would say they're probably more lost. And to make matters worse, the Jewish people were saying to all of the followers of Jesus, you've got it wrong. Like, you're doing it wrong. You're not really trusting in God's true promises because those promises are for us, not for you. And they've stiff-armed and they've rejected Jesus. And now they're also calling God's promises and his integrity and his character into question in the hearts of those who are following Jesus. So over the next few chapters, not only is Paul going to act on his deep concern for lost people and show us how to point people towards the gospel, but, God, but Paul is also, he's also going to deal with the fact that God's integrity and his promises and his character have, been, have now been put at stake, right? So here's the thing. You got, how's Paul going to do all that? Like how, like that's a lot to, that's a lot, it's a big chunk to chew off, right? Like that, like, like what, how's he going to do this? This is the, this is the genius of Paul, right? This is why I love reading, like he's so smart. Paul's going to do this with one thing, and that is God's sovereignty. He's going to use one thing, one aspect of who God is, one aspect of God's character to answer these questions, to lead people, to lead lost people to the gospel, and also make sure that we understand that God always keeps his promises. Paul's going to talk about one thing, and that's God's sovereignty. And here's the dictionary word. You know, somebody like, sovereignty, like, what does that mean? That's not a word that we use much today. Here's the dictionary word for this. The definition is, it's supreme power and authority. That, when we talk about sovereignty, that's the definition of this word, supreme power and authority. Now, here's what it means for us as it relates to God. God's sovereignty means this, that God can do whatever he desires, however he desires to do it, and can use whomever he desires to accomplish it. That's what God's sovereignty looks like. That's what it means. And for Paul, the way to lead lost people to the gospel and prove that God's promises in Jesus are real and true. It's found in one place, one aspect of God's character, and that's his sovereignty. And to unpack what God's sovereignty looks like, Paul uses three examples. We're going to talk about three examples today in the Old Testament that do this. They speak directly into the lostness of Paul's own people, the Jewish people. And these stories, these examples that Paul uses, they speak directly into God's unfailing integrity and character. So we're going to pick up in verse 6, chapter 9, 6, verse 6. It says this. Paul starts out, it's not as though God's word has failed right off the bat. He said, listen, God, like God didn't break promises. God didn't just one day all of a sudden say, hey, I'm going to change my mind, right? These people that like, were in, like these, the, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people that I chose, Ah, I'm kind of tired of you guys. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to choose you, and instead I'm going to choose them. Right? He's going, no, no, listen. Like God didn't go back on his word. God didn't break a promise. His promises never fail. God's word never fails. And he says, for here, here's why. For not all who have descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offering, offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent that are God's children, but it's children of the promise. Whose promise? God's promise. God's promise that is good and right and true, and you can depend on it because his character and in his integrity are, are flawless. 
It's these people, the children of the promise, they are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated to Abraham and Sarah thousands of years ago. At the appointed time, God says, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Time out. Let's unpack this. Like, what is going on? Lots to unpack. Again, you got to remember, Paul's doing two things. He is both defending God's character and integrity, and he's trying to loosen the grip that these religious lost people have on their own status and on their own ability as a means of being saved. I just need you to just loosen your grip a little bit. Just listen to me for a second. And what Paul points out here is, here's the deal. Just because you belong to a physical ethnic line does not make you spiritually a child of God. One author says this, when it comes to salvation in God's sovereignty, it's grace, not race, that counts. And here's the thing. A lot of times, and this is why these, these, these chapters, 9, 10, and 11 in Romans are controversial. Because some of these verses are used, right, to, to, to promote racism, specifically anti-Semitism towards Jewish people. And if we read this, the way we read this, if you really and truly read what Paul is saying here, it actually speaks directly against racism. Right? Because here's what he says. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, everyone has an opportunity to be a child of God. It's not about the color of your skin or where you live or your zip code or the country that you're from or the language that you speak. Everyone has the opportunity to become a child of God. It's grace, not race. So people in different parts of the world... People in parts of the world maybe where, where, where Christianity is not present, right, where, where it's illegal to be a follower of Jesus, where if they had a church like this on a Sunday morning, people would kick down the doors and would put them in jail because they're talking about Jesus. Those kind of places, people can still become children of God. They can still trust in Jesus. It's, not, it's grace, it's not race that counts when it comes to salvation in God's sovereignty, in God's kingdom, what that means is this. The spiritual peace matters more than the physical peace. And if we go back into Genesis and we read the story of Abraham and Sarah, which all of the Jews would have known really well, we know that Abraham actually had two sons. Abraham had two kids. And just kind of a quick recap of the story, right? So, so God shows up to Abraham and he says, listen, I'm, I'm going to make you a promise. You're going to be the father of a nation, and Abraham's like, listen, man, me and my wife are pretty old. Like, she can't have kids, and, like, things aren't working the way they used to when we were younger, right? How's this going to happen? God's like, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Well, they get impatient. They get impatient and say, listen, you know, God promised us this. Maybe we can help him out, which that happens a lot, right? God makes a promise. We go, listen, God, let me help you out with this one, okay? So they come up with this plan. He, listen, Abraham, Sarah goes to Abraham and says, listen, my, my servant, Hagar, why don't you sleep with her? And then she'll bear us a son. And she does. That happens. They go in. They, it's like, listen, this is how it's going to work. We're going to help God out. God, we got you. I know you said you got us, but we got you. And they have a son, Ishmael. Abraham and Hagar have a son named Ishmael. Like, we did it. God shows back up. It's like, hey, look, God, look what we did. And God's like, nah, that's not what I said would happen. That's not what I said I was going to do. I'm actually, like, Sarah, your wife, is going to have a child. And Sarah's response is she laughs at God. And you're going to name him Isaac, which that name means laughter. And sure enough, that happens. God's promise comes true. Sarah gets pregnant, has a son, and they name him Isaac. Now, here's the thing. Both sons were physical descendants of Abraham. Both sons were physical descendants of Abraham. But only one, Isaac, 
was what Paul calls a child of the promise. See, Ishmael had a physical tie to Abraham. And here's the deal. When you read this story in Genesis, we see that God still cared for and blessed and provided for Ishmael. God didn't look at Ishmael and go, you're not the one. God still cared for him. God still blessed him. God still provided for Ishmael. But even with God's care and provision in God's sovereignty, right, the fact that God can do what he wants to do, how he wants to do it, with whoever he wants to to use to accomplish it, even though Ishmael was blessed, Isaac was the chosen child of God's promise. There's a difference. Well, what's the promise? The promise is, the covenant to Abraham was that you're going to be the father of a nation, And beyond that, the covenant to all of humanity was from that nation will come the Savior of every nation. That's the promise. And that's why Isaac was chosen. See, Isaac was blessed and chosen to be a part of that promise. Isaac had a physical tie to Abraham, but he also had a spiritual tie to God's covenant that ultimately culminates in Jesus. Ishmael's birth was Abraham and Sarah's initiative. That was their plan. Isaac's birth was God's initiative. It was his plan. Just like Jesus' birth was God's initiative. It was his plan. It was supernatural. So Paul, he's accomplishing two things at once by telling this story. You might be like, where's he going with this? When you read this story and know what Paul is trying to do here, that he's trying to lead lost people into the gospel, Right? He's trying to, to, to make sure that everybody understands that God's promises don't fail. Here's the two things that Paul's accomplishing right here in this moment. Number one, he's pointing to the fact that God has the ability to fulfill every single promise that he ever makes against all odds. It looks impossible to you. It's not impossible to him. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. What Paul wants us to get is that we are only given the right and the ability to become children of God through faith alone and the gospel alone. Salvation is 100% a spiritual matter, not a physical one. It means this, that, that we cannot believe in ourselves to save ourselves. We can't believe in us to save us. Choosing to believe in Jesus means I choose also not to believe in my own initiative and my own plan. When I choose to believe in Jesus, I also choose not to believe in my works or my abilities, or my lineage, or my heritage, or my ethnicity to save me. It's only Jesus that can save me. I believe in God's initiative to save me through Christ. It's his care and his concern. And Paul wants to make sure that those who are lost know the truth. Here's the truth. God can do whatever he wants to do. Nothing is impossible for him. And God never breaks a promise. He never breaks a promise. He always fulfills his promises. And the only way in this case that we can be saved is through faith in Jesus. Paul continues. He goes on in verse 10. He says, not only this, I'm going to tell you another story. Rebecca's children, they were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. See, there was this argument going on at the time that, like, Paul's whole deal with, like, Isaac and Ishmael was weak because it's like they were born at two different times and had two different moms. It's like, well, Paul, like that doesn't really count. Paul's like, all right, you want to go there? I got you. Let's talk about twins who came from the same parents and were born at pretty much the same time. Right? If you want to th- try to throw a grenade into this, I got one more for you. 
And he says this, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she, Rebecca, was told the older will serve the younger, which is totally backwards. It's totally backwards. The older brother is going to serve the younger brother. Just as it's written, it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And Paul's quoting Malachi there. But here's the thing I want us to get, and we can leave this slide up here for just a second. Because sometimes we look at this, we read things like this in Romans, and we get really confused. It's like, whoa, whoa, hold on. Like, God loved Jacob, but God hated Esau? That seems harsh. That seems really harsh. See, here's the deal. We, we attach in our, like, modern Western brains, we attach emotion to love and hate. But at this point, what Paul is talking about, in Hebrew, these words for love and hate, they were not based in emotion. They were based in preference and action. So when it says that, Jacob, that God loved Jacob and hated Esau, that's not an emotional thing. Basically, the way this translates is, listen, Jacob is the one that I've chosen, and Esau is the one that I have not chosen. Because, again, God, just like, just like Ishmael, God provided for, blessed, and cared for Esau, okay? It's important for us to know that. Jesus uses this same phrase in Luke 14 when he says, listen, when it comes to me, like, you've got to hate your whole family, which is not, it does not give us permission, like kids, students, it doesn't give you permission to go, listen, Jesus told me, mom, I hate you in Jesus' name, right? Don't do that. That's not what Jesus is saying, right? Jesus is saying, when he says, listen, like, when it comes to me, you've got to hate your mother and, and your father and your brothers and your, and your whole family. Like, it's not Jesus going, like, hate them. Jesus is saying, listen, it's, it's this. It's like, choose your love for me over anything else. Love and hate for us is emotional. Love and hate in this case is all based on preference and action. It's all about choosing something over anything and anyone else. And this is God's sovereignty at work. Not only does God keep his promises, but his promises go beyond our effort and our ability and our status and our works. See, with Jacob and Esau, God made a choice before they were even born. God's choice of Jacob wasn't contingent, nor was it, it, was it any kind of response to anything that Jacob and Esau had done. Jacob hadn't done anything to earn or deserve God choosing him. Esau hadn't done anything to disqualify himself from God choosing him. Here's what we get from this. It is not by our works that we are chosen. It is by God's sovereignty. It is because God chooses us. It's God's choice to do what he wants, how he wants to do it, and with whom he wants to use to accomplish it. And this deal with Jacob and Esau, like it flew in the face of every kind of rule and tradition at the time. It worked against the current of every human expectation, and that's how God works. He doesn't do what we expect all the time. God is not a cosmic spiritual vending machine. He has will. He has desire. And he has sovereignty to do what he wants to do with his will and desire. And again, remember, keep it in your mind, Paul is walking us through all of this out of his care and concern for the lostness of people in his own family. And they would have known these stories. They would have known how all this worked. And Paul's going, can you not see the truth is staring you in the face? How can you see this? Paul, essentially, what he wants us to know is God's character and integrity, they're not broken. 
that God has and has kept and he keeps his promises. And it has nothing to do with your works. It has everything to do with his sovereign grace and mercy. The way for Paul to point people who are lost or religious lost to the gospel is to point to God's character and his sovereignty. That's the thing. That's what Paul does. Let me just point you to God's character and his sovereignty. And he kind of wraps up this section by saying this. He says, what should we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, this is tough stuff. It's tough stuff. It's tough truth to unpack. And before we wrap up today, I want to address an elephant in the room, right? Romans 9, 10, and 11 have always been, like we said, a little controversial. Because here's the deal. When we start talking about God's sovereignty and the fact that he can choose what he wants to do, who he wants to do it with, and how he wants to get it done, right? The topic of predestination or what some call the doctrine of election or the principle of selection, that comes up. That comes up. The fact that God would choose one and not the other. That comes up in this. This is one of those big rocks. We talked about Romans 9, 10, and 11. There are a lot of big rocks, and those big rocks matter, and we're going to talk about it. We're going to address this right now today. But here's what I want you to understand. Sometimes the conversation around predestination and election and selection becomes the main thing when it's not the main thing. The main thing is you and I learning from Paul when it comes to our attitude, care, and concern for people that are lost. That's the main thing. The main thing for us to walk away from these next few chapters together is this, that we should have, that our care, what what should our level of care and concern be? What should our attitude be? And how do we engage people that are lost? We can't lose sight of that. But what I want to do here in the next few minutes is just be really clear on what we're talking about when we say election or selection or predestination. And that's this, right? God is omniscient. And that means God knows everything. We read the Bible, we read in the Bible, that, that, that tells us that, that God knows how many hairs are on our heads and that God knows every moment of every day of our lives. Just like God knew every moment of every day of Abraham and Sarah's lives, of Isaac and Rebekah's lives, of Jacob and Esau's lives. See, God knew. God knew when he made that promise to Abraham before they even left their, their place where their family lived, like he knew that Abraham and Sarah would try to take matters into their own hands instead of trusting him. He knew that. He knew Esau would betray his father by trading his birthright to Jacob, and he knew that Jacob would be the guy to con him into it. God knew that. God knew that in spite of Moses pleading with Pharaoh to release the Israelites, right, and all the ten plagues, he knew Pharaoh is still going to harden his heart toward the Israelites. But here's the thing. In spite of knowing all of that, God also knew even still, I can accomplish what I want to accomplish. Even with all of their brokenness, I can still accomplish what I'm going to accomplish. God knows in his sovereignty that he's dealing with broken, messy, and incapable people when he deals with us. And here's the cool thing about sovereignty. Knowing that, he still chooses to accomplish his work in us and through us. 
that should be our main takeaway when it comes to this whole idea of election, selection, and predestination. It's this, that even though we are broken and we are messy and we are incapable, God still chooses to accomplish his work in us and through us. Our incapabilities have zero impact on God's sovereign promise. Zero impact. And let me just be really clear for a second, right? If we're being honest, no one deserves to be chosen by God. That's harsh, but it's true. None of us deserve. None of us have a claim to it. None of us have a right to it. None of us are owed salvation, right? No one deserves to be chosen by God. But here's the deal. It's because of God's sovereignty that grace and mercy are a reality in our lives. God chose to offer it. God chose to make it available to anyone and everyone, knowing before he even offered it up through Jesus that there would be some people that look him in the eye and say, no, There would be some people that would reject God. There would be some people that would look at and know about and hear about Jesus' work and his life and his death and resurrection and and would reject that and say, I don't need that. God knew that people would say no, but still he did it anyway. Like for many of us, if we're gonna offer something to someone, usually there's conditions. Like I'm gonna offer this to you, I'm gonna do this for you, but I need to know you're gonna receive it. Right? I need to know you're going to get it. I just want to make sure you got this. That's not how God works. N.T. Wright says it like this. He said, God's purpose was to act within history to deal with the problem of evil. But this could only be done by employing a people who were themselves a part of the problem until the time was right for his own son to emerge from their midst and all alone take their destiny upon himself. At the heart all the tension between God's sovereignty and election and predestination is the fact that some will choose to answer the call of the Holy Spirit on their lives. Some people will choose to say yes to that. Some people will choose to say yes to trust the gospel and to believe in and on Jesus to save them, and some people won't. And God knows that. Those who choose Jesus are also sovereignly chosen by Jesus. You didn't just choose Jesus. Jesus also chose you. Those who choose to reject Jesus will also one day sovereignly be rejected by Jesus. And I go, man, I don't know. That's, that's tough. Here's the thing. You cannot want and desire perfect grace and perfect mercy in your life and not also have perfect justice. If justice goes out the window, if justice is imperfect, so are, so are grace and mercy. Grace and mercy would also be imperfect. God has perfect grace and perfect mercy and perfect forgiveness and perfect sovereignty, and he also has perfect justice. We have to have both. So here's the deal. If you've trusted Jesus with your life, you shouldn't question your salvation. Like, did God really choose me? Am I really saved? God's sovereignty should not cause us to question our salvation. It should cause us to stand in awe of it. Like, God chose me, of all people, with all my junk, with my doubt, with my fear, with my insecurities, with my addictions, with with all of my shortcomings, with all of my brokenness. He called me to be his child. He calls me a child of his promise. God knew me. God saw me. God knows me. He sees me. Why? Because God is sovereign. 
And that means for us, church, if you've chosen to trust Jesus, that your salvation, that my salvation, our salvation is as real and as sure and as certain as Jesus. Jesus chose to call you, and you accepted the responsibility to answer it. See, an argument in all this is like, well, I guess we're not really responsible for anything. If God knows what's going to happen, that's not true. God's sovereignty does not let us off the hook. We accept the responsibility as believers in Jesus to answer his call on our lives, and we continue to live into that responsibility every day through faith and obedience, to love God, love people, and make disciples. That's what we do. And we're going to talk more about responsibility next week, what that looks like. But here's where I want to land today, right? It's kind of a cliffhanger. Salvation. What we need to understand is our salvation, we did not earn it, we do not deserve it, we do not have an entitlement to it, we do not have a right to it, we do not have a claim on it. Our salvation is 100% spiritual and supernatural. You and I being saved by grace through faith has nothing to do with our status, our ability, or our capability. It has everything to do with God's sovereignty and his perfect character and integrity. That's the truth. That's the truth. When you and I choose to answer his call on our lives, to trust in Jesus within us, there is a collision of heaven and earth. It's not so much about you and I trying to get into heaven one day, so much as as God's sovereignty is, is about him choosing to get a piece of heaven into us now. That's what this is about. When we say yes to Jesus, our entire nature changes. See, without Jesus, we are God's creation, and he cares for his creation. He cares about his creation. Without Jesus, you're still God's creation, and he cares about you, but with Jesus, you are God's child, and he loves you. You are his, and he is yours, and all of this may seem impossible. Tim Chaddock says this, so often the promises and ways of God are seen as impossible and improbable because we look upon them through the lens of human ability with human conditions and human capacity. As believers, church, we are called to live impossible lives. Our lives are an impossibility. It is, it is, it is to us impossible that God would choose us, but he does. It is to us impossible that God would save us, but he does. It is to us impossible that God would equip us with the Spirit and send us out to make disciples, but he does. And here's the thing. Because of that, no one is impossible. No one is too broken. No one is too far gone. No one is too messy. No one is impossible. Because here's the thing. As we think about the people in our lives that don't know Jesus and we go, eh, it's impossible. Uh, it's impossible to have a conversation with them. There's probably a day, a point in time when someone thought the same thing about you. And look at you. Look where you are. Nothing is impossible with God. I love that. Even as we're coming out of Christmas, right? When the angel shows up to Mary and says, listen, Mary, you're going to have a baby. You're going to have the son of Mary. He's like, um, I'm a virgin. And the angel didn't go, well, shoot. I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do about that. Oh, the angel said, listen, what seems impossible to man is, is not impossible to God. With God, all things are possible. And in God's sovereignty, it's not on us to figure out who is chosen and who is not. God takes that responsibility 1,000% on himself. You don't have to worry about that. 
You don't have to worry about who's chosen and who's not. The only thing God wants you to be concerned about is, the, is, is sharing his gospel and making disciples. You don't have to worry about trying to figure out who's in and who's out. The only thing we have to worry about is sharing the truth of his gospel and making disciples who can make disciples who can make disciples. God says, listen, I will deal with that. I take full responsibility for that. So for us, as we wrap up today, I want to ask that question again. What's your level of care? What's your level of concern for the people in your life that are lost? God says, listen, you've got a responsibility. You're chosen. You're one of my children. And your responsibility as one of my chosen children is to help me find my chosen children. We can't save them. We talk about this a lot at Adventure. It's not our job to save anybody. It's our job to get people and Jesus in the same room so they can work it out. When we say yes to Jesus, we still have a responsibility to make disciples, to share the gospel, to lead people to truth, to care about those that are lost, to be concerned about those that are lost. So we're gonna stop right here today. We're gonna pick this up again next week. We're gonna talk about our responsibility and what that really looks like. But today, if you want to choose to trust Jesus, I would love to meet you down front. If you need prayer this morning, I would love to meet you down front. If you want to join our church, be a part of our church, would love to meet you down front. I'm going to pray, we're going to worship together, and then we'll wrap up. Jesus, you are good. And we love you. We love the fact that in your sovereignty, you could have chosen not to use us. You could have chosen not to be in a relationship with us. You could have chosen not to save us. All the times that we walk away from you, all the times that we push you out of our lives, all the times we turn our back on you, you could have said, listen, it'd be a whole lot easier for me if I just don't even use them at all. But yet, in your sovereignty, you made that choice. The choice to use us. The choice to choose us, to make you children of your promise, which your promise never fails. So Jesus, today we pray for the people in our lives that don't know you. We pray today, Lord, that you would lead us into contact and collision with them. We pray for the conversations that we can have like Paul. We learn from Paul. Listen, we don't have to have all the answers. It's still a mystery. But what we can do is we can point to your character. We can point to who you are. And that's enough. God, we pray that your spirit would call and save those who are lost. And Lord, we accept the responsibility of being in that mess with you. So God, help us to bring the good news to those around us. We love you, Jim. We pray. Amen.